Well, we now have the privilege of hearing the Lord speak to us in His Word. As we turn this evening to Leviticus chapter 23, we uh, come to consider the whole of this chapter and have an overview of the feasts that we have been, uh, or I have been preaching about for our evening services of late. So we now read God's holy word as he gave to Moses. And of course, here we have recorded the very words that God spoke directly to Moses, but they are not simply recorded by Moses' best effort to remember what it was that God said some years or months ago. But uh, Moses is writing down exactly uh, what God said by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the infallible, the inspired, the inerrant word of God as we read Leviticus chapter 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day, when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout, all, throughout your dwellings in all your dwellings, excuse me, throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And you shall... Count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves, two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, 
They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. And you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening from evening to evening. You shall celebrate your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides your, all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Since the reading of God's holy word for us at this time, may he bless its reading and its proclamation and its hearing this evening. Well, I might have preached a sermon like this at the beginning of this series, but I thought it would also be good for us after we've gone through all of these feasts of the Lord to have a quick overview as a review of the things that we've learned. So we'll just touch on, we won't get as deep, of course. Uh, we'd have to have uh, a bunch of sermons here. Uh, you know, 
all squashed together, and we'd be here all evening. And we might have to fear that someone would fall asleep and fall out of a window or something. And, um, <clears throat> but we do note this evening, as we do this quick overview, that uh, the scripture does begin, the passage begins by uh, saying that, that after the Lord speaks to Moses and tells him to speak to the children of Israel about their holy convocations, uh, the first thing that he mentions in verse 3 is the Sabbath day. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no, no work on it. It is the Sabbath day of the Lord in all your dwellings. Uh, there have been some who have said that, uh, that the Sabbath day worship, the uh, what we call the synagogue worship that was customary by Jesus' time, is not commanded in the Old Testament. And in fact, uh, there we actually see it commanded. They're just simply overlooking that, uh, which, uh, which God says that they are to have a holy convocation. That means getting together. Uh, you come together uh, for worship. Uh, this is on the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath. Uh, and it's to be done, you notice, in all your dwellings. So in other words, wherever the Israelite people live, they're not going to the temple, to the central sanctuary, wherever they live, they are to get together on that Sabbath day and worship God. Well, that is the command for synagogue worship, or now as we would call it, church, uh, the assembly of God's people coming together for worship on the Sabbath day. Well, in addition to that weekly Sabbath, which of course is in the Old Covenant, from what we would consider sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, the Lord instituted uh, for all Old Testament Israel seven special feasts and co- or convocations, several uh, seven special religious observances for Old Testament Israel. And we're all probably aware of the connection, uh, certainly... Uh, from the sermon a while back on Passover, we are aware of the connection of Passover and the Lord's Supper, and I plan uh, in coming weeks to preach a little more on that. But in fact, every one of these feasts, as we've seen, uh, is a type or shadow of the things revealed in Christ Jesus. There is a particular connection to Christ and what he accomplished in each one of these Old Testament feasts. And we'll talk Uh, just doing a a quick overview about uh, those connections again tonight. The first of these feasts was Passover, and after uh, considering the weekly Sabbath, the Lord then speaks of the feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. So there's the weekly Sabbath, but then there every year is an appointed time for these other special convocations. Uh, each of which involves other Sabbath days, other days of ceasing, holy convocations in which they were to do no ordinary work. And the first of these was the Feast of Passover. Uh, In fact, from the days of Moses, it was around the time of the first Passover that uh, the Lord said, you will count the beginning of the year from this point, so from this month. So the month in which that took place, the month that includes the spring equinox, Remember, it was new moon to new moon that the uh, ancient Israelites counted a month. And so that month uh, would be uh, the first month of their ceremonial calendar. So 
Uh, this took place on the 14th of that month, the month of Abib, or later on it was known as the month of Nisan. Yes, like the, like the car, uh, except that it's, uh, I don't think the derivation is the same. Uh, <clears throat> that was the first month on the calendar of ancient Israel, at least on their ceremonial calendar. It was the uh, month of spring, again overlapping roughly our March and April. Passover commemorated the time when the firstborn of Egypt were killed in the tenth plague before Israel was liberated by God, freed from their bondage in slavery in Egypt. And the firstborn in Israel were spared, not because they were righteous, because they too were sinners, but because the blood of the sacrificial lamb was on their doorposts and the lintel of their homes. We discussed in the past the deep connection, of course, that this has to Christ. We see that that it had nothing to do with the particular value of righteousness. Uh, wasn't that these were good people, but only by entering the house with the doorposts and lintels painted, as it were, uh, sprinkled in the blood of the sacrificial lamb, could they be spared the same plague that came upon all of the rest of the people living in the land of Egypt. So for now, keep in mind, as the Passover lamb was killed and his blood uh, sprinkled on the doorposts uh, of Israel, uh, sprinkled with hyssop, that plant that has kind of a spongy uh, end so that it could soak up some blood and then would be sprinkled, just as that... Uh, lamb was killed and his blood was sprinkled on spread on the doorposts and the lintel so that the wrath of God and the angel of death that he sent uh, passed over any who entered that home so do we enter God's kingdom through the blood of Jesus Christ our Passover lamb and we are spared God's wrath because we are covered in that blood. The day after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin. So Passover is on the 14th, so now on the 15th of the month of Abib, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The two are so closely associated that these terms, Passover and Unleavened Bread, became uh, pretty well used interchangeably by the time of Christ. And so we find New Testament writers using them almost interchangeably. But technically, Passover is on the 14th. The Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, starts the next day. It's the seven days following Passover, the 15th through the 21st of the month of Abib. So Passover and the next seven days were days that Israel ate only unleavened bread with their meals. And we Uh, touched before on the fact that they would be so very careful to remove all of the leaven from their homes. This commemorated, of course, the hasty departure from Egypt, for one thing. They didn't have time to bake leavened bread before they left. They also have to eat bitter herbs, which uh, both remembers their bitter experience of bondage, but also remembers the fact that 
they didn't have time to wait for the food to ripen. They just had to eat what was available and then get out of Egypt. But in the Bible also, leaven, yeast, is often used as a metaphor for uh, things that influence a person or society. Uh, There's only really one place that it's used positively. Jesus tells his disciples to be like leaven and permeate the whole world and influence it with the gospel. And that's uh, pretty much the only positive association of leaven other than its normal use as having, you know, leavened bread, as we uh, noted. Uh, There is a feast here in which some leavened bread is brought at Pentecost. But more often, leaven is used to describe negative influences. In other words, sin. Think of Jesus telling his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Just as a little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough, and so that it becomes a loaf of bread, and you don't find one part of the loaf of bread that is is not leavened and another part that is. It just permeates the whole thing as long as that yeast is alive when you put it in there. So sin taints everything the sinner thinks and says and does. We were talking about this a little bit this morning when we talked about how uh, human wisdom in and of itself is not enough to uh, convince a person to of the truth of God's claims. That No one is going to arrive at God's wisdom by using human brain power alone. And this is because even our thoughts are corrupted by the fact that, as Paul says in Romans 1, our foolish hearts are darkened. It's not like everything else about us uh, is sinful, but our ability to reason is not. And this is the great failure of the Enlightenment and much of philosophy since then, because Uh, Much of philosophy since the Enlightenment thinks that human reason is enough by itself to arrive at absolute truth, at least until you get to the postmodern philosophical movement where they say the truth can't be arrived at. But in fact, while we can reason a certain amount of truth, apart from God's intervention in our lives, we're never going to arrive at ultimate truth because we reject it, and we will use our wisdom, we'll use our intellect to convince ourselves that the truth isn't actually the truth. We're corrupt. Just as yeast leavens the whole loaf of bread, sin taints everything about us. That means without atonement being made for us, even our good deeds, even the things that God says are good, when we do them, they have an element of sin attached to them, which makes God angrier with us than before we did the quote-unquote good deed. And of course, if we fail to do the good things that God commands, then he's righteously angry with us and grieved at our sinfulness. And so we are without hope if we're trying to earn our own way into God's favor. We need a sinless substitute So Jesus is sinless. There's no leaven of sin in him whatsoever. It doesn't taint anything about him. And think how I've used that analogy before, uh, that metaphor of of a tainted glass of water. You get it from 
from people like Augustine of Hippo, who spoke of the taint of sin being on everything in us. Well, if I have a glass of water like this one right here, and it's and it and it's tainted, you tell me authoritatively. I know Daniel that that water is tainted. Well, there's no way I can turn this cup so that I, if I take a sip, that I won't get some of that poison in my body. The whole thing is permeated with something dangerous. But Jesus doesn't have that in him. He's sinless. He's like the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread looked forward to the sinless life of Christ. And it was unleavened bread that he used to represent his body when at the feast of Passover he instituted the Lord's Supper saying he was about to give this body to be broken for his people. Moreover, the Exodus, which the Feast of Unleavened Bread remembered, points to the fact that in Christ we are being called out of the world into the kingdom of God. And yes, our journey there will be through a wilderness, but we are being rescued by God from out of a fallen and sinful world. Before we get to talking about that wilderness journey, we note that next on the calendar came the Feast of First Fruits. This actually would have taken place, the first of these feasts that's called the Feast of First Fruits, would have taken place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because this, uh, there was actually a Feast of First Fruits a couple times uh, in most years. Uh, there were two growing seasons in ancient Israel. There was a barley and wheat harvest. Uh, and they were harvested in the spring and again in the fall along with several other crops. The barley harvest would usually have begun by Passover. So the day after the Sabbath day of that week of Passover, or during the the midst of the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was this day when it would have been what we would call a Sunday, a Lord's Day, it would have been the first day of the week when the first fruits of that barley harvest were offered as a thank offering in the temple. And we know, of course, this is the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of Christ as the firstfruits of God's people, resurrected from the dead to everlasting and glorified life. So the Feast of Firstfruits is tied strongly to the resurrection of Jesus Christ which fulfills all the, of the symbolism. He is the first fruits of those to rise from the dead to the everlasting and glorified life to which he rose. The first fruits of the wheat harvest would be offered in the temple on the day after the Sabbath, seven weeks later. So 49 days, so seven, days, seven weeks, a week of weeks after that feast of first fruits, or 50 days from the Passover Sabbath. So again, it would have been a a, uh, a a Lord's Day, as we call it, a, a first day of the week. So it was the same day as the Feast of Weeks. Uh, so because it was 50 days from the Sabbath of Passover week, it was called Pentecost, which means the 50th. At this feast, the people of Israel thanked God for the full harvest to come. 
Also, it took place about the same time relative to Passover that the law was given at Mount Sinai. And so it was also a time of commemorating the giving of the law. At that time, the Lord made his covenant with Israel after rescuing them from bondage. You'll recall that God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. He speaks the Ten Commandments to all of Israel. And you'll note that uh, he begins it by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He and then begins the list of the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. He didn't give the Ten Commandments or any other commandments of that kind to Israel in Egypt saying, you shall keep these commandments and then I'll rescue you if you do. No, they're to be the response to the grace that he has already given them. But at this feast, the people of Israel did thank God for a harvest that is on its way. And they remembered this rescue from bondage and the giving of the law. Likewise, after ransoming us from sin and death with the blood of Christ, on that following Pentecost, the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit on the first generation of believers in the New Covenant era. They became the first fruits of the harvest of God's people out of the whole world. The first day of the seventh month, so now we jump a few months later, get to the seventh month on the ceremonial calendar, the month called Tishri, uh, which overlaps our September and October. This was the Feast of Trumpets. This was a solemn day of rest, another holy convocation, a day of rest and worship, and it was called particularly by the blowing of trumpets. Uh, These were the shofar, the ram's horn trumpets. This set the seventh month apart as a Sabbath month, as a special holy month. It was a call for preparation. The Feast of Trumpets was particularly a call for preparation for the most important day on the ceremonial calendar. You might think that it was Passover, but actually it was the Day of Atonement. In the modern Jewish calendar and in the ancient ancient civil calendar, this was New Year's Day. So while it was the seventh month of the ceremonial calendar, it's the first month of the civil calendar, and so this would be considered New Year's Rosh Hashanah. It will still appear on your calendars. You might see a day in the fall that's marked as Rosh Hashanah. That's the head of the year, literally, in Hebrew. In Matthew 24, 31, Jesus connects the Feast of Trumpets with the call of the elect of God to be gathered into one fold. The Feast of Trumpets, therefore, has its fulfillment in the preaching of the gospel that began with Jesus and then went forth after his resurrection and his ascension, in which he told his disciples to go and preach the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. This is looking forward, the Feast of Trumpets, to the gospel call, which calls the elect of God out of every nation to become children of Abraham. Ultimately, it will be fulfilled at the call of the trumpet of the archangel predicted in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, which will call all of Christ's people, living and dead, to rise and come to him. Think of what we say when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
And so this looked forward to the return of Christ. On the tenth day of that same month of Tishri came the day of atonement, Yom Kippur in Hebrew, literally the day of covering, the day in which the sins of God's people are covered. See why it was considered such an important day. Now here the word feast might be a bit misleading since this was actually a day of fasting. In fact, it's uh, the only scheduled day of fasting on the Old Testament calendar. The commandment literally is to afflict or deny yourself, as we read this evening. And we see from ancient sources that this was universally understood to be through fasting. On this day, the high priest would make a sacrifice for his own sins of a bull. He would, uh, this would be for the sins of himself and his family, and he would take that into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the altar, as we noted a few weeks ago, and actually on, excuse me, on the mercy seat, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Then he would uh, come out, and two goats would be brought. He would lay hands on them, placing the sins of Israel on them. And uh, One of them, actually this would be second, but one of them would be taken out into the wilderness and abandoned. It was the scapegoat. It symbolized the removal of sin from God's people. The other one on which the lot fell was the sacrifice for sin. Well, Christ became our scapegoat, having our sins laid on him. He was taken outside of the gates of Jerusalem to be put to death. The other goat was sacrificed on the altar, and the high priest would collect its blood in a bowl and take it into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to cover the sins of God's people. The mercy seat was considered God's throne or his footstool on earth, so it was a representation of God's holy throne in heaven. And the blood symbolically covered the sins of of God's people, and some spoke of it as obscuring the Lord's vision, so to speak, as the Lord looked at the people of Israel through the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And so he would not look at the people's sins. He would see, if he did look at the people, that their sins had been paid for because death is the wages of sin. The imagery of the Day of Atonement, of course, is fulfilled in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For, as Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats can't actually pay for human sin. But this looked forward to the actual substitute. And if you are covered in his blood, then God sees that the penalty for your sins has been paid. You have been atoned for. Last came the Feast of Booths, Sukkot in Hebrew, along with unleavened bread and Pentecost, it was the third to require the presence of every adult male Israelite at the sanctuary. So Passover and unleavened bread, they had to be there. For Pentecost, they had to be there. And then also for the Feast of Booths, three times a year, they had to come to Jerusalem eventually, once God placed his name there, to celebrate. Jesus, three times every year, went to Jerusalem to observe these feasts. It began five days after the Day of Atonement on the 15th of Tishri and lasted a week uh, during which Israel was to live in booths, that is temporary structures made from branches and palm leaves and so on, and it commemorated the time of Israel in the wilderness. We talked about some other uh, practices around that with uh, the flaming torches and water pouring ceremonies that Jesus uh, used as illustrations. 
It was also known as the Feast of Ingathering, and it celebrated the fall harvest. It foreshadowed the rest and reunion that Christ's people will have with him in his kingdom, and it reminds us that our home here is temporary. We are like Israel in the wilderness. We're moving toward a promised land, and we're not in it yet. We await the time that we enter fully into the kingdom of heaven. All of these feasts are summed up in the salvation that Christ purchased for his people when he gave himself to be crucified. And since the Lord's Supper uh, declares uh, Christ's death for our sins, as we celebrate it in particular, we are celebrating Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and Pentecost and trumpets and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Ingathering, which looks ultimately again to the ingathering of all of Christ's people out of the world. All of the meaning of these Old Testament types and shadows were fulfilled and accomplished in the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the promised return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would anoint us by your Holy Spirit, that with proper wisdom and reverence we may receive your sacraments in their appointed time. We pray that we might each day contemplate his sacrifice for us, knowing that in Christ all your promises to your people have been fulfilled, they have been accomplished, as we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.